0: Hello and welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Nations Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, reporting to you from our New York City headquarters where I've been spending the past day or so writing about new celebrity collaborations with restaurant chains. Uh, These sorts of collaborations have been going on for decades, but they really seem to be picking up speed lately. Uh, A couple of examples are Ben Affleck doing another commercial with Duncan, uh, this time with rapper uh, Ice Spice, to promote a new uh, frozen coffee drink that has munchkins spun into it, in case that's something that, that you're interested in. Uh, also, Friendlies, another New England chain, has uh, collaborated with the Jonas Brothers uh, on Sundays. Uh, all three of the Jonas Brothers, Joe, Nick, and Kevin, uh, have, according to Friendly's, uh, collaborated with the chain to develop their favorite Sundays. Uh, and if any of the Jonas Brothers wanted to sit down with me for a Sunday, I'd be happy to do that, but I would not follow... Nick's recommendations for what to order because apparently his favorite Sunday starts with vanilla fat free frozen yogurt. And if I'm gonna have a Sunday, there's going to be ice cream in there. Uh, apparently, the Jonas Brothers grew up on Friendlies. Uh, and as I said, it's a New England brand, but I know that the Jonas Brothers are from New Jersey uh, because my former boss, the great. Pam Parsegian, uh, used to have me over for Thanksgiving, and I met some of her nephews, and they had actually gone to high school with the Jonas Brothers, so that's fun. Uh, A celebrity in my book is Michael Schlau, who is my guest today uh, on uh, in the kitchen, and uh, he has been working in restaurants, also in New England, for for a long time. He uh, operates a bunch of restaurants there, and also in Washington, D.C. And we had a really nice conversation about what uh, he has been working on. Uh, This is one of the first times in a while that we kind of look back at COVID and how he adjusted it, something that not a lot of people super enjoy talking about, but uh, Michael Schlau wanted to reflect on that. And he also talks about how the industry has changed and what he's working on and it is a nice conversation that I hope you will enjoy. Uh, One last note, if you wanna listen more about the celebrity collaborations, one of our other podcasts, First Bite, uh, is reporting on exactly that topic. Uh, It's online now, available wherever podcasts are found. And now please enjoy my conversation with chef and restaurateur Michael Schlau. The last time I saw you, Michael Schlau, we were having breakfast at some point before the pandemic at a hotel in Midtown Manhattan.
1: I think we were. Do you remember which hotel it was? Is it still
0: there? Yeah, that's a a good question. It's wherever you were staying, I think.
1: I think it was, I kind of remember it being in Midtown and being like this really good breakfast. I want to say it was... um, was the place called Norma's or something like that? Was this breakfast? Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is a famous. Uh, I think that's where we met. Uh, at the yeah. Parker Meridian, I think. Yes.
1: I think that's where we went to. and It was great.
0: It could be. Well, I do remember the breakfast being very tasty. Yeah. So that was nice. So,
1: yeah. It's been a while.
0: Yes. Well, you know, time has been telescoped and, you know, I think we all still have a bit of fog going on. Uh, agreed. <laughs> But uh, what are you up to these days? You got a bunch of restaurants in New England and the D.C. area.
1: Yeah, I mean, COVID really changed the landscape of my company. We had grown quite a bit prior to the pandemic, and we were really all over the country. We had uh, restaurants that we were involved in in West Hollywood, Santa Fe, New Mexico. We had done a consulting project outside of Detroit, uh, New Hampshire. You know, uh, Connecticut. Massachusetts, uh, certainly Washington D.C., Virginia, we're Maryland, <clears throat> and like many companies, you know, COVID really wreaked havoc on that. And for a variety of reasons, some were you know landlord issues, some were just an issue where if uh, you know there was no office tenancy, then we we just couldn't survive. That the, you know we were we were hoping for that, so we sort of you know like everybody else, we hunkered down and we. Uh, A lot of things closed. Uh, We're a much smaller company right now, but we're emerging from COVID and things are starting to look prosperous again. And so uh, we're sort of just in the rebuilding mode. So we still have some restaurants in Boston area um, and we have some restaurants in the DC area, just a a lot smaller company right now.
0: Uh, And that's happening a lot of places. We've been reporting about how Uh, a bunch of chains are sort of justifying how they're closing a bunch of restaurants. And obviously, a lot of people have gone out of business and retrenched and stuff. Uh, So how has the pandemic or whatever the past Mm -hmm. shifted your priorities?
1: Well, I think my priorities remain the same. And that is as far as, you know, certainly when it comes to business and life, and that is to you know, make food that I could be proud of and provide great hospitality. I think a couple of things that certainly happened and we talk about this all the time, and that is that there's been a, we're starting to emerge from it. But prior to COVID, I would say there was, there was zero meetings that I attended that didn't use the word culture. Um, Everybody's talking about the culture of your company, the culture of your team. Are you like-minded? And while we all still were, when you got into that defensive stance of just protecting and trying to stay alive during COVID, culture started to not be part of the conversation where it was just sort of put on the back burner. And I see that that is a term in my company that's emerging again, which makes me very, very happy because, you know, doing a Zoom call or, you know, doing things on the Internet in general, you know, whether it's email or what have you, it's hard to build culture. You know, I do think you need to be in the room together. And so um, it changed, you know, and so, I mean, so many things for our company changed and so many things we learned about our company that we could, things that we can't do without and then things that, you know, maybe we could live without. So it became, as always, uh, very much a story of needs versus wants. So at the beginning, it was what do we need versus what do we want? Because you're trying to just get by. And the other part that was interesting, and I don't, I'm not happy about this part, but it is a reality, is the notion of making things leaner. Uh, When I say leaner, I mean, hours of operation, what time staff comes in, the foods and the menu engineering, all those things that were always important became that much more important, I think, because you really didn't have any choice. Um, And so you're figuring out like, how can I provide a really great looking menu and really delicious food? But I know it's to go for most of it at the beginning of the pandemic. So we changed recipes even like I'm such a stickler about pasta. When I first started my career, I wouldn't sell pasta to go because I was afraid you're going to put it in the microwave. And then I realized, you know what, I have no control once once it leaves my hands. And so we changed when we were at all to go shop, we changed the way we make pasta and we made it a little what I'll call saucier so that as you drove it home, it didn't become this like lumpy lumpy mess that you know you couldn't um that you couldn't um uh you know that you would just pick put your fork in the middle of it and the whole bowl of pasta caught so we put it made it a little saucier and guests recognized that and realized that we were making little subtle changes um to the way we were preparing food now that we're you know out of covid and 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 hopefully it does not come back um fingers crossed uh, you know I think that people are once again looking for experiences. And that's a word you hear all the time now is I'm looking for a great experience. So that's not just food. That's all the things we put together. And I've always believed that, but I think it's become highlighted even more so now.
0: That has to be interesting as a chef and I'm, I'm a food writer. So, you know, in my heart, I want it all to be about the food, but it never has been. I mean, never. it's, it's always been sort of a combination of the service and the most important thing of any meal is who you're eating with, and you can't control that. As for as sure, an operator, and then as long as the food meets expectations, everyone's going to have a great time. You got good lighting, the temperatures right, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've always believed that you know dining in a restaurant is really about all five senses, and so what's the last thing you get to do in a restaurant? Eat the food. Right. right? Think about it. It's the last thing you get to do. You first have to walk in. What are you hit with for ambiance? What's the greeting is, you know, hospitality takes a gesture, takes movement. And so I always felt, well, yeah, the food will ultimately be the thing. And over the course of my career, I realized, no, it's, it's just part of the thing. And, you know, how are you greeted? Was your reservation on time? You know, was your martini cold? Was your server knowledgeable about the foods that they're preparing for you and that we're preparing for you? You know, did they know a wine list? Whatever it is. And I think that people will always want that, even though we are getting more and more used to automation and convenience. And unfortunately, some of that convenience, the experience changes. So like I was never a user prior to COVID. I was never a user of delivery apps. I use them in my business. And they accounted for you know two, three, four percent of our revenue. But when you're locked up at home and I was out working because of you know what I do for a living, I couldn't be home. So I was working, but I found myself on the occasions that I was home, I would call, you know, a delivery service to bring some food. And there is a convenience factor of it, but then you're sitting in your house and you're eating out of a you know cardboard or plastic container and you realize the food is important, but there's no experience other than maybe the convenience and you're eating in your sweatpants, you know, in front of the television. Um, but yeah, I think that there's been so many changes to our industry and there hopefully will be some good things that come out of this. And then I think unfortunately we're going to lose some things that we always valued. And that part's unfortunate, but it's just, it's, it's just evolution.
0: Well, and it seems like we were going in that direction before the pandemic. Anyway, there was already more automation. The delivery apps were already uh, wreaking havoc on the industry. while well, not making money themselves, but taking profits away from the restaurants. And that, sure. that was concerned before everything shut down.
1: You know what they did, Brett, with the, it was interesting marketing campaign, the way that they would sell it to us, the operators. This is a way to get more eyes on your business without like increasing rent and all this sort of thing. And so when it was a very small component of your business, only a few percentage points, you're like, Okay, so maybe, you know, if Brett's looking through and scrolling through and said, oh, you know, I always wanted to try Altastrata. Uh, maybe I'll just get it delivered. And then if I like it, I'll go to the restaurant. And we all bought into that. That's fine. But when it became, that it became, you know, 80, 90, 100% of your business during COVID, it wasn't a, it was no longer viable. You can't, we already work on such slim margins. You can't be paying somebody an enormous amount of the ticket to um, to deliver the food. What I never understood about like Uber Eats as an example, when I call Uber to take me to the airport, they don't ask me how much I weigh. They don't ask me how many people are with me. They don't ask me how many bags I have. They don't ask me what was the price of the ticket you're going to fly on? You know, how is that going to affect All right, It's about coming from point A to point B. So what I don't understand about Uber or DoorDash or any of these other companies is why the, what, the amount of what you purchased is how they calculate your charge. Why not say, like a taxi cab, it's a flat charge. It's for me to take it from here to your house, Brett, it's $10. And if you want to leave a tip, leave a tip. But, oh, wait, it's a hamburger in that bag, so it's $7. It's a filet mignon in that bag, so it's $47. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, it It seems the more you order the more money they make and doesn't change the gas needed to go there. doesn't change the driver, doesn't change anything. And I think it's a flawed system that I hope somebody will give these companies some healthy competition and do flat pricing.
0: That's a good idea. And I I'm, I imagine you still use third-party delivery at- We your... don't have a
1: choice. Yeah. We really don't have a choice, but you know, it is the thing that when the restaurants get super busy- and luckily now today, the in dining is back. And so there are times, you know, certainly when it gets so busy that you have to turn those third party apps off. That's when I feel bad in that, you know, somebody wanted our food and couldn't get it. You know, the old days you'd call up a restaurant and say, hey, can I place an order to go? And you would go to the bar and wait for your food to be ready. And there was something, you know, I don't know nostalgic and good about those days but it's just changed and like I said it's convenience but we've all gone on those apps and sometimes they'll say you know it's a, an hour or it's a busy time and call back later and so there's some frustration with it as well there's there's good and bad like there is with everything
0: yeah well I I stayed in my apartment for 13 months basically and you know the the day that my second vaccine was supposed to kick in I went out and ate in a restaurant, and yeah. <laughs> um and even now i don't use the delivery apps what i do and i'm sure a lot of our listeners do the same thing is is go on the restaurant's website figure out how they want me to order delivery. that's
1: the best so if if people can do that like on our of our websites we do have flat pricing <clears throat> so if you were if you wanted to save money, you go on my website versus going to Uber Eats or DoorDash or Lyft or you know any any of these GrubHub's, um, and it, it is less expensive. Most people don't realize that. I think a lot of restaurants do offer if you go to their website and at least try, you can get a delivery service. Like we we've partnered with the delivery service, so it's flat and it's a lot less expensive than all these fees that get you, that you get hit on at the same token, the convenience and having all these apps, it does help our business. It does. It's just a big chunk of money, you know, and they end up charging us huge, huge. They're doing it on both ends. You, the, the final consumer pays for it. And we, the operator paid for it, how they're not making money is beyond me. They yeah, should Pretty they
0: incredible. Should, yeah. But there's also the concern as an operator, I saw a study recently that indicated how much less satisfied customers are when they're not eating in the restaurants they have complaints it took too long which of course it did the food's not the right temperature obviously it's not the right temperature you know there are so many issues there are the orders are often inaccurate these are the really common complaints and something like 50 percent of delivery ratings for people who rate them get one star
1: wow which can't wow. be
0: good almost no.
1: Well, and the other part about eating in the restaurant that might be the very best part, we clean up after you. You don't have to clean up. <laughs> that, that right there is the best part of the experience. You know, you don't have to do the dishes. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to take the garbage out. We take care of everything.
0: Well, and just to sit and have people bring you stuff is really yeah, great.
1: It's very. It. But it's funny in that we look at it in our company also as a privilege. And it's something that I teach constantly. Um, daily really is that is, you don't need us. You know, the reality is you can go to a supermarket, you go to a delivery app, you can get food, you can feed yourself, you know, even if you don't know how to cook, you can feed yourself. You can go and get something to eat and everything. And so that when you come into our door and you come in and allow us to take care of you, you are giving us a privilege, really. You're giving us a privilege to not only earn a living, put a roof over our heads, put food on our tables, But you're also giving us something extra special, which is you're giving us that privilege. We get to be part of your daily life. We get to be part of birthdays and celebrations and anniversaries and deal closings or, you know, a proposal or even just two people sitting and having a good time. And that experience cannot be mimicked at home in the same way. Don't get me wrong. I love a great dinner party. It's so much fun. I'll cook the dinner party for you, but it's not the same as a restaurant and the music and the energy it's it, it really is um, irreplaceable. I do think that there will be long term less and less full service restaurants because I just think that's a way of the future and evolution and things like you know having a QR code and you know somebody will still deliver your food maybe but you ordered it yourself. There'll be these hybrids as they are popping up all over the place now, but the experience of somebody taking you to your table, bringing you a menu, bringing you a drink serving you food, interacting, and you get to interact with your guests, I don't think that will ever, ever, ever go out of style. We will always have full-service restaurants.
0: Do you have any restaurants that are not full-service?
1: Yes. I mean, we're in a couple of food halls. Um, So those two, you walk up to the counter. We still make the food fresh. We make it at the same integrity that we would make the food in a full-service restaurant. But the two food halls... Um, one is Time Out in Boston. One is Hub Hall in um, in uh, North Station at the TD Garden. Um, one's a burger joint called Sauce. The other one's called Michael Schlau's Italian Kitchen. The food's delicious, but you walk up to a counter, you order, and we we give you your order. So it's it's a little bit faster. Prior to COVID, we had been working on our version of a fast casual restaurant. I was so excited to do this. It was called Prima. And Primo was going to be, or we got off to, you know, we were only open for a few months before COVID struck. It was a fast, casual Mediterranean restaurant where you walked up, the food was very fresh. There was no stainless steel It was the sort of antithesis of what you see in a lot of these fast casual places where it's just stainless steel and they're scooping. Beautiful, colorful bowls of fresh vegetables and legumes. And there was chicken and salmon and shrimp. There's all kinds of stuff. And it was healthy uh, it was mediterranean um, but you could walk into the line and if you knew what you wanted to eat you could walk down that line and get out in, in a minute um, and have really really well prepared food um, and it could be lunch or dinner well unfortunately we opened up you know um, six months before COVID, and that was just not going to work so we shut it down and i don't know maybe someday we'll reopen it i don't know but i think those concepts if you were to try to enter the market today they need density of population in order, if they don't have brand equity, you know, the Sweet Greens and kavas of the world, the Shake Shacks, they have brand equity already. And so they're, they are continuing to grow off of their good name, which is great. You know, they're great companies with really good food, um, good product, fresh product. And I'm, and I use them. I go and I eat at those places. Um, so Primo was just getting started. There's no brand equity it's i think it's hard it's going to be harder and harder for new fast casuals until the workforce comes back to work i think it's going to be hard for for fast casuals to get any real traction right now
0: it's it's interesting that some companies who should know about brand equity because they've spent often generations building brand equity Then started launching a bunch of virtual brands, and a lot of them didn't do well because you know because people didn't know who they were and yeah everybody
1: and I think also COVID out of desperation, uh, people were just throwing any kind of idea at the wall. I myself included, we created a pizza ghost kitchen, you know that was. Like just a fun wings, pizza, whatever. It did a little bit of business, but nothing to write home about. It had no, like you said, no brand equity. Nobody knew it. And if you're not out walking the streets to see a bricks and mortar place, or you didn't catch on, um, you know that's interesting. There's a place here. In, I'm in D.C. right now. I'll be back in Boston tomorrow. There's a place here in D.C. that the the Ghost Kitchen did so well, it turned into a bricks and mortar place. So yeah. some people were very successful with it, also.
0: Yeah, there are a few that uh, have opened restaurants and it's it's funny they're like no the model of the future is you know
1: this this the ghost kitchen i don't i don't know if that's the case i mean i think people probably got a little overzealous about some of these that i mean yes it's almost like disney world when you think about it let's call one place and we'll be able to get chinese thai indian american I understand it, but the reality of carrying all those food products and all that different equipment and all the different types of cooks necessary to do that, I think would be a daunting test. There was a place in D.C. that was trying to open up, I think it was like 11 or 12 concepts under one ghost kitchen roof. That's going to be hard to do, I think. And I think it's going to be hard to do where it would all get out at the same time also, just to coordinate it. But, you know, maybe somebody could do it and figure it out which would be amazing. Uh I don't, I'm i not the guy for that one.
0: Well, I mean, there is an alternative in real life that used to be called a food court, and now yeah. it's a food hall.
1: Yeah, it's the same thing. Idea. Yeah. And, you know, the one thing I would say about the food halls is they are trying to have a, a higher quality of food, which I appreciate. They're not all successful. Obviously, some are doing better than others, but they're also not the end-all be-all answer to your potential retail woes it's got to be good and it's got you know you you end up with a rev share in these in these food halls and it's got to make sense you know if the if the food hall is charging too much on the rev share side there's no money to be made and then why are you doing it you know so you gotta you gotta balance art and commerce you know you gotta be able to make good food but you have to be able to make some money off of it too otherwise it doesn't make any sense so like i said the the margins are just so slim so Labor continues to be, you know, not an issue as far as finding people, but just the sheer cost of it. It is it's it is the most expensive thing in restaurants today, aside from, you know, also rent. And I think rents and landlords, much as they don't want to hear it, there's been tremendous amount of pressure put on the food and beverage industry when it comes to retail. Because as retail goes by the wayside and as it's bricks and mortar retail becomes less and less... Who's going to take those spaces? They can't all be banks, coffee shops, gyms, or restaurants. They just can't. And so um, I think there's a lot of pressure on the restaurants. And that's, it's sort of, you know, it's a domino effect. If there's more restaurants, there's only so many restaurant workers to go around. And so how do you end up staffing your place if instead of there, let's just say a, a small town could handle six good restaurants. And instead, because of the landlords being unable to rent some of these spaces to traditional retailers, there's 10 restaurants. Well, there's still the same amount of restaurant workers in the town, perhaps. And so you end up with a thinning of the herd a little bit and it just makes things a little bit more difficult. But again, I remain very optimistic about the industry. I remain optimistic about people wanting a good experience that they're never going to change from that. They're always going to want it. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you have to go to the places where um, you think that you're going to do well and for me, you know, having infrastructure and people that I can count on and are like-minded, people I wanna work with, those are the important things, you know, Then that. I think that's another thing that came out of COVID is realizing how important it is, not only what are you doing, but who are you doing it with and making sure you're, you're with like-minded people and that you're having fun doing it. Cause COVID wasn't fun, that's for sure. You know, we used to laugh all the time and have a good time and it was dead serious, um, obviously. But um, luckily we came through it and company's still standing. So I'm, I'm very, very proud of the men and women that I work with. They they did an amazing job to band together. And um, I, I don't know that I could ever properly show my gratitude for what they were willing to do. And I was, you know, I did, I did it side by side with them, you know, washing dishes and taking the garbage out and making deliveries and making pizzas every day or whatever it was that we were doing. So it was a, I wish it never happened, obviously, like everybody, but I'm I'm also proud of everybody that I got
0: to, you know, go through it with. Yeah, we learned a lot. That was useful. I know my life is better. I really did not enjoy COVID. And I try obviously, and I try to remember what I did during those 13 months when I basically didn't go anywhere. And my brain just puts up a a wall and says, no, we're not going to remember that.
1: Yeah. I think that we all have a little PTSD from it. You know, there's for sure. And I get, I don't know if you feel the same way, Brett, but I get confused about what year certain things were occurring also sometimes like, was that 20 or 21? You know, because it was, it was horrible. You know, I was, uh, at the beginning of it before there was any testing and because I had to work, I didn't see my family. Um, I didn't see my kids. Um, you know, my now ex-wife um, and I talked about it, and like, I would be overridden with such guilt if I brought COVID home from work and gave it to my kids, you know, and, and um, I just, you know, I, I stayed away from the house. I You know, I worked and stayed away. It was not pleasant. You know, we did video calls every day, twice a day, and the kids were home, you know, but Luckily, you know we're moving on and we're we're built rebuilding and lots of new stuff in the in the works for us. We're we're looking at building some new restaurants. We've been doing interesting. We it, it, one of the interesting projects we've had and it was on board to open April first, twenty twenty, was a, a restaurant at Logan Airport, an Alta Strata at Logan Airport that we were partnering with Delaware North to do this, and we're. Everybody's trained. Everybody's ready to open. And literally the day we were supposed to open, they shut the airport down. And so that thing was mothballed for a year. It just sat there empty. We got to reopen and it's doing well. We've got two restaurants at, the, at Logan Airport and they're doing well. And, you know, just trying to find new and exciting projects, uh, mostly in places that we already are. So it's really primarily New England and Washington, D.C. that we continue to focus on. But Uh, The hotel industry has been an interesting one for us, and it's where we've sort of had our bread and butter for a long time. So we've seen that hotel industry starting to come back. We had lost a bunch of restaurants and hotels. Either they were sold or they closed permanently uh, or the contracts weren't renewed. And we're seeing that business starting to come back, which is that's encouraging. That means people are traveling again, some businesses coming back, but we're definitely seeing a, a big spike in the hotel industry.
0: Yeah, a lot of uh, multi-concept operators, such as yourself, are are relying on hotels or or leaning on hotels. Uh, I guess because they have the infrastructure, they have somewhat of a of a captive audience. When you know,
1: it's a win-win. You know, I think what's happened, and the people that I know that I know well in the hotel industry, they've always said, "Our what we do best is is the rooms. That's what we do the best, and what we don't do best." is we can't take the same attitude we do about the rooms and try to bring it into food and beverage. And so for a lot of them, they'd much rather sub that food and beverage out to somebody like myself, where we have an entrepreneurial spirit versus a, you know, a lot of these hotels have more of a protective stance, so to so to speak, where they've got too much layer of management and too many people working and they can't make any money, even though they're making good gross revenue. I would say to them, if you took my labor model, my food and cost, uh, my cost of goods model and injected this, you know, and used it on your revenue side, you'd see a lot of bottom line profit from it where they're not showing any bottom line profit from it right now. And so their other part is that, that some of the higher end hotels have certain brand standards that almost make it impossible to be profitable because the brand standards are so high whether it's on the uniforms or you know the labor model of how many people it takes to run a certain restaurant it literally is impossible. So when we come in we bring a different spirit to it and it has been very successful across the country as i said you know whether it was out in West Hollywood or Santa Fe New Mexico or you know again uh we did that project with Dartmouth it's been very very successful in the hotels and and so it's a win win the the hotel owner and operators happy and we're happy because we have a good home and you know, where we can do breakfast, lunch and dinner. I don't shy away from breakfast. I, I know a lot of chefs don't like to do it. But I, I think it could be a great service if you make it fun and you know good food. I love breakfast, so I don't have an issue making it.
0: Yeah, breakfast is great. So I'm a fan, even though I don't eat it every day. Yeah, I don't eat it often enough either, but I like it, you know. And just some sausage and eggs. I'm happy. <laughs> uh, so what are you working on now, Michael Schlau? So I'm working
1: on a bunch of projects right now. So one of the things that we started was we took a, a existing concept Tico in Washington D.C. and we transformed it to Namiko. I was lucky enough to get to partner with Derek Watson. Derek was the chef of Morimoto in uh, in Philadelphia. He also worked at Mamatoro as the chef in Chicago. Two really two of my favorite Japanese restaurants. And so we turned Tico into Namiko, a, a Japanese, highly spirited, fun, uh, big energy restaurant. And so Derek, and then um, we, we just have a fantastic team where Aziz is our general manager there. So we've been we've been spending a lot of time on that. Alta continues to grow. There's five altistratas now. There's uh three in New England and two in DC. So there's one in, in Washington, DC, one in, in Merrifield, uh, Virginia. Continuing to look for new locations for that as well. It's just a very casual, beloved Italian neighborhood restaurant. You know, you're just going to get a good bowl of pasta. It's not. It's not a bucket list restaurant. You know, it's the restaurant you go to once a week, and I, I like that. You know, I mean, I love bucket list restaurants too. And, You know, maybe someday I'll build something like a radius again. But right now, focusing on restaurants that you know are going to be very approachable, uh, give you that experience that you're looking for. As we talk about, as, as everybody emerges from these past three years and things that we can also feel really proud about, you know, as we grow them. Um, So, you know, the the focus is there's one restaurant that I want to bring back that was a, um, uh, you know, unfortunate situation during COVID. It's a restaurant called the Rigsby, which is in Washington, DC. And that hotel got sold and where the Rigsby was and the owner that bought it, had their own food and beverage program coming and so, you know, obviously we, we understood that, but it was a much beloved restaurant in DC and I'm looking for a new home for that right now. Um, I think I found one, but it's not a done deal yet, but I'm looking for the home for the Rigsby. And uh, just continuing to grow, but continue to grow with projects that we're interested in, and not doing it, you know, simply for money. They've got to be part of the community. Then we have this little criteria checklist that we always think about. You know, not only is the restaurant feasible, is it doable? But do or is it is it needed? Is it wanted in the community that it's going to be built? You know, built in? Do we have the infrastructure? Are we going to be stretched thin to do this? Because um, it's important that you know people continue to grow in our company, also. I know that I could never do this by myself, not in a million years. And so I want to make sure that the people that we work with are always feeling like they're in a learning environment, but they're also in an environment that provides, you know, upward mobility and an opportunity for them. So I am um, feel very fortunate, Brett. You know, I, I I chose a career that doesn't feel like work. I love it. Um, I, I could talk about it all day long, every day. I never get tired of it. If, if you want me to cook at two o'clock in the morning, I'll cook you something at two o'clock in the morning. And so I feel very fortunate. I, I never wake up on Monday and be like, oh, I got to go to work. It's No, I'm excited. I'm excited for, for the future.
0: You've been doing this a long time. How long have Did you- Just call me old, Brett. Did you just call me old? I feel like we're probably close to the same age, but I, you've, I don't know. I mean- I, I've been doing
1: I- this for my whole life. I, I was 14 years old when I had my first dishwashing job. And I never looked back. I mean, I went to college and I'd go into culinary school, and I did other things. but at, if I, if I had one job, it was in in food and beverage. <clears throat> sometimes I might take a second job doing something else to earn extra money, like when I was in school or whatever. But I never stopped from the time I was fourteen till today being in the food and beverage industry. I've never done anything else. And I still cook all the time I was cooking yesterday in the restaurants. i you know i'm I'm, I'm in a chef coat all the time. Sometimes I'm not, but often I am. And um, you know, it's a, it's a tricky, you know, the position that I'm in now, you know, as the owner of the company or one of the owners of the company, it's a tricky position in that I I don't want to step on toes of the chefs that I have, but I want to be there to support them, coach them, provide that learning environment without, you know, treating them like they're not the chef of the restaurant, they're the chef. And so they deserve that respect. And so it's, there's collaboration, um, but at the end of the day, I've gotta be respectful of their position also. So that part's a little tricky. You know, chefs wanna put their stamp and their fingerprints on everything. And I have gotten to a point where I say, I don't care where a good recipe comes from. I just care that it's a good recipe. So if it came from me, great. If it came from the chef, great. If it came from the dishwasher, I don't care. Just do the guests enjoy it. And does it fit in the concept that we have, you know, decided this is what we're doing. If it's an Italian restaurant, Let's not put tuna with nigiri rice, wasabi, and soy sauce on the menu. That's not going to fit in the menu. That doesn't fit in the concept. You want to do tuna crudo with radish, lemon, and, you know, some mint. Okay, you can get away with that. That sounds good. That sounds Italian enough. But um, allowing them their freedom also and their ability to be creative, because I think we all want that. We didn't get into this industry to just be like, here, here's the menu. Cook this. If that's the case, you probably go work for you know maybe a chain restaurant. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Obviously, it's just different.
0: Well, it's interesting that I mean you started out loving cooking, I assume, and now you cook less, and you have to do the the psychological work of of you know nurturing every one of your employees, which is not that's not how cooking starts. You know what no. I mean? No, it's
1: not. I mean, I think cooking comes. For me, anyway, it started with wanting to provide. And I still feel this way. Cooking started with the notion of being not only creative, but that there's something about the act, whatever it is that you do. If you're a woodworker, if you my, like my grandfather, he was a furniture maker. Um, if you can do something with your own two hands and then give it to somebody else and watch their reaction, and if that reaction is positive, that's gratifying. I, you know, there's very few professions that I can think of that something comes in the back door, a product comes in the back door, you manufacture that product, and then your distribution center is right next, you know, right through the next set of doors. You know, if you make a product, a computer, let's say, the person that makes the computer never, or the computer that makes the computer, never gets to see the end user using the computer. Um, Sports, live sports, you could say, you know, they get to see the reaction immediately live uh acting, drama, singing, you know, anything in the arts like that. But if you make a movie, for example, that movie could take three years before the actor sees the reaction of the of the viewer before they get it. It's not instant. Ours is instantaneous. Now it's not always good also. And sometimes it's bad. But when it's good, it's very, very gratifying. And I think it's what keeps you back, coming back for more. But there's not a lot of jobs like that. That and I think that's one of the things that drew me to it. And there's something about the notion of providing for people, that giving something from your heart and something from your creative, you know, mind and your your soul. There's something about that that's just really has always like pulled me into this industry. And it's you know, it's funny. There's um, I know it may not be the same sort of um you know, company is what I'm thinking, but I remember being touched by the commercial, I think it's for, I think it's for Red Roof Inn where they say, we'll always leave the light on um, that hotel company, you know, and the notion of like, there's something that's waiting for you that it's always there and, and if it was, you know, whether it's a nice day or a miserable day that there's this shelter and there's, there's the notion of feeding somebody and taking care of it, It's just it, it's so gratifying to me. Um, it's hard to sometimes put into words but emotionally. I know that the feeling is what brings me back every day to to my restaurants and um and it was never probably more evident than you know we've spent a lot of time talking about covid but delivering food and often you know for free to firemen and policemen and EMTs we just deliver pizzas and pasta and stuff and it felt good you know i mean my hero uh is and has been for a while is jose andreas you know feeding the world and taking care of people i just think that you know He's an amazing human being. I was, um, during the beginning of COVID, I was, I drove a couple of times from Boston to DC. And one time I was driving and I ran into Jose at, um, place called McPherson square. He was delivering food by himself to homeless people by himself. He wasn't, there's no cameras there. He wasn't looking for any applause. And I got out of the car and helped him. And, you know he i said how are you doing this this before you know this is a while ago i said how are you pulling all this off and he said i don't know he's like i just do it and i worry about the cost later you know and now he's you know he's a juggernaut and my hat's off to him i think he's done some very very you know meaningful and special work so i and i think that there's probably that same sort of thing about it's not just helping people but it's providing it's the notion of you know of providing something for somebody it's just special it feels good it feels good
0: well that is lovely and we only have about 90 seconds left anyway so i think that is a really great way to wrap up our conversation it was a pleasure catching up with you
1: always a pleasure to speak with you too bro we'll have to meet up at norma's one day soon and uh, have some more breakfast
0: or or i'll go to boston or dc and we'll figure Um, that out
1: all right so nice to see you thank you again for having me on i really appreciate it I, i wish you well